Well, if you would turn with me, uh, like Hans just said in the prayer, to Philippians. We're in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. That was a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Lord, would you guide us and strengthen us today? Would you be with us? Would you open eyes and hearts, that you would help us to see what you have for us in this text. Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Strengthen me by your grace, that your words would be clear, that you would be honored and glorified in all we do and say. In Christ's name, amen. Sorry, I'm not communicating well. You can just turn the lights down a little. They're really bright. Thanks. Like, everybody's a spot out here, so. All right. Well, have you ever read or watched or listened to something, and you just wondered what in the world the point of it all was? You had really no idea. It, was, it just didn't seem to fit. It's not that you didn't understand the words that were used, but you really had no idea why they were used. What, what was the point of what was being said? Granted, all the words made sense, they, 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 they said something, yet it didn't seem to fit or connect with what was actually going on at the moment. But then after a little bit of time, you thought about it, you pondered it for a while, and all of a sudden you realized, hey, that did fit. That, that did actually make sense. There, there was a connection. It wasn't just some random stream of consciousness babbling. There was a point, and once you saw it, you actually began to appreciate what was said. But not only did you think about it yourself, but you asked some others who were around, and you realized that they had some other insight into it, and, and you saw how well it actually flowed together. I've actually experienced that on multiple occasions with books or in, in studies at school. I remember even thinking through Hebrew early on. Like, I these vowel points and things like that, it was just completely backwards. And then one day, it clicked. Not that it's any good anymore, but one day back then, it clicked. 
And honestly, though, this is, this is a bit like my experience with this text before us this morning. You see, back in 127 and 28, Paul wrote, he wrote this, he said, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents.'" So that's this, this charge, this exhortation that Paul gives. And from that point, he moves on with that exhortation, and he explains to the believers that they will suffer for the gospel. And then he lays out this beautiful hymn about Christ, our ultimate example, the ultimate one who gave himself for others. But it's also encouragement for us, because by virtue of being believers, we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. We have the mind of Christ by union with Him. And so we have the ability to more and more live in a manner worthy. And then Paul continues to call the believers to obedience in all things, at all times, to continue to work out their salvation in that practical day-to-day. And then we come to Paul talking about sending people to Philippi. But Timothy and Epaphroditus, and it just seems out of place. One, he normally puts this at the end of his letters. So smack dab in the middle in in many ways, it just seemed out of place. But as I further read through it and I reflected and I studied, I actually believe this flows beautifully. When we see and understand what what is going on with with Paul, with, with, with these two men and with the Philippian believers and what Paul is seeking to accomplish. For here, Paul, by his life and the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, he illustrates with living and breathing examples, what He's actually been exhorting them to do all along. So, what we're going to see this morning is what I've called profiles of servanthood. In the very first words of this letter, this is how Paul characterized himself, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We are servants of our Lord. That's what we are called to be. And what Paul shows us here are the character traits that are present in servants of Christ. Things like being submissive, being selfless, and I'm going to make up a word, suffer willing, because willing to suffer doesn't work with all the S's. So, I'm making something up, suffer willing, okay? You get the point, and you'll probably remember it now. That's good. So, Paul shows us these things because it's important to know that these things that, that he's exhorted us to that, that sound very high and lofty, that seem really difficult because they are, they're impossible in our own strength, they are actually present in believers. There are real-life examples that we can learn from, that we can learn to emulate, because those, those that we hang around, those that we look to, those examples are good for us in our lives. Hopefully, good examples are good for us in our lives. Bad examples are not. So, we learn from those we watch, those we hold high. So, Paul commends these men to the Philippian church and to us as profiles of what servanthood looks like. Now, as we get into this, even though Paul writes mainly about Timothy and then about Epaphroditus, his language highlights a truth that is very present in his life, and I I think that it's very important for a servant of Christ. As I read through this text, this type of language was some of the first things that stuck out to me. So, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
23, I hope therefore to send him. 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. What do you see? The repeated language of one that's I hope and I trust, but in the Lord. I hope in the Lord. Paul has hopes, and, the, and these are not slim chance types of hope, but actual confident hopes. But they're grounded and rooted in the Lord. It's not hope in some ethereal thing, but it's hope in the Lord. In many ways, Paul is saying what I remember hearing a number of times from R.C. Sproul. He'd use the Latin phrase, Deo valente, Deo valente, Lord willing, Lord willing. It's an attitude of submission to the sovereignty of God. It's not a statement of resignation or of passivity. Rather, it is looking to God as the one who is in control. It's an attitude of humility and submission. It's an attitude that, that follows actually that of our Lord Himself. John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Or John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's how Paul longed to operate, and it's how we see him operating here. He's looking to the Lord. He didn't rest in his own strength, in his own ability to plan. He rested in the Lord. He, he believed what he had been taught throughout his childhood, growing up in a, a, a Jewish household. Things like Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. But we also hear the same thing in the book of James. In many ways, James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. See, Paul is utterly cognizant of the truth that everything in his life, every circumstance, all of it, it belongs to Jesus. It's under the, the sovereign reign and rule of his king. He realizes he is not his own, but God is working through him and in him for God's glory and for the good and joy of others. So Paul is then submissive to the working of God in his life. So folks, naturally this leads to a question, doesn't it? How do I view my life and my plans? One, do I view it as my life and my plans, or do I view it as God's working through me and God's plans for my life? Am I, uh, am I humble enough to be submissive to the Lord's call and purpose in my life? See, over and over again, we see Paul talk about his future, but as he does that, as he talks about different things, it's surrounded with this um, underlying understanding of if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. One 
commentator wrote this. He says, if, if you are becoming a spiritual grown-up like Paul, you will formulate your hopes and plans with humility. Always aware that Jesus, your sovereign, has both the right and the wisdom to overrule your choices and redirect your paths. Along with humility, your planning will express your passionate commitment, not chiefly to your own security and comfort, but rather to Jesus' glory and His mission in the world. I feel like that last sentence is important, that a lot of times Christians are our priority is our safety and our security and our comfort rather than Christ's mission and glory in this world. What do we long for more? What will we fight for more? If you look at the men that Paul talked about, it's pretty clear that they fought rather for God's glory than their own security and comfort. So we turn to Timothy. Look again at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What Paul hopes for at this point is to send Timothy. He hopes in the Lord to send Timothy. And one of the reasons is is that Paul may be cheered. He writes that, that he may be cheered by gaining news about the Philippians. I love that phrase. Because what is it that encourages Paul? It's news that the people he loves and cares for deeply and is called to shepherd that they are doing well. That's what cheers him, that they are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the name of Christ. Paul is very much concerned for the church, and he is, he's pretty much laying out his heart here. He's saying that he will either be cheered by news, or the flip side that's implicit there is he will be discouraged by news that Timothy will bring back. This is the heart of a shepherd, longing for the people he's charged to care, to walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus in a way that demonstrates the unity of the Spirit. And you don't have to be a pastor or a shepherd to understand that. If you're a parent, you understand that. If you're a good friend with someone, you understand that. Many of you have had good friends who have made really poor choices, and it's discouraging. You've also had good friends who've made excellent choices, and it cheers you. You love hearing that news. This is what cheers Paul, is hearing that the people in Philippi are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so Paul desires to send Timothy and he calls him one like any other, really, because Paul, Paul found, wrote that he has found no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, that word like him there, it means it, it's the Greek, if you translate it, it really woodenly means kind of equal souled, of the same soul. Timothy is of the same disposition towards the church that Paul has. They are of the same mind. Now, Paul is not saying that no one else that he knows has any concern for the Philippians. 
That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that Timothy really is a kindred spirit with him. They had a unique relationship and felt much the same way about things that mattered. And it probably came through serving life together. I remember my senior year in college, uh, a guy by the name of Jay Bryan, he and I talked at the beginning of the year and we said, hey, you know what? Let's pray for this campus. Let's pray for the ministry that we're involved in. And we were like, okay, when, when are we going to do it? Well, our class schedule was horrible with each other, so we're like, how about six in the morning? Okay, how often are we going to do it? Monday through Friday. And our entire senior year, we got up every single day, even days he was pulling all-nighters, uh, doing urban planning projects, he'd walk back and we'd pray together. And partway through the year, he and I were finishing each other's sentences. People were like, you two are so doggone alike. Because we spent that time together, not only did we pray, but we, we labored in ministry together in different dorms and different areas on campus. We had a kindred spirit with one another. And it came through that time together, and, and it was beautiful. And I think Paul has that same kind of kindred spirit, probably even deeper with Timothy, and he knows Timothy is going to be concerned for the church. And that word concern, interestingly, it's the same word that is translated as anxious in chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So depending on the context, this word that is translated concern either is, is a deep care, a strong concern in this very positive way, or it morphs into apprehensive and, and undue concern what we typically call anxiety. Now, sometimes in Scripture, that's, uh, anxiety is used in different ways, so just understand that it isn't always used the same way, because Paul, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, after he had written um, about kind of the, the difficulties, the trials, the shipwrecks, the beatings, all these kind of things that, that had, had been a part of his life, he writes in, in 11.28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety or my deep concern for all the churches. Paul deeply cared for the people, so much so that he, he felt their issues in his own heart and his own soul. Again, that's the heart of a shepherd. It's the heart of a pastor. And Timothy shares that with him. And then when we come to verse 21, we learn a little bit more about Timothy, and he does it in some ways in a, in a negative manner. He draws out what's important. He, he writes, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know for sure who the they is in this though it certainly is not referring to unbelievers. Paul is referring to other believers, and Calvin wrote this. He said, he does not speak of those who had openly abandoned the pursuit of piety, but of those very persons whom he reckoned brethren, nay, even those whom he admitted to familiar intercourse with him. These persons, he nevertheless says, were so warm in the pursuit of their own interests that they were unbecomingly cold in the work of the Lord. 
For it must necessarily be that one or other of two dispositions prevails over us. Either that, overlooking ourselves, we are devoted to Christ and those things that are our Christ, or that, unduly intent on our own advantage, we serve Christ in a superficial manner. I think that phrase where he says, they were so warm in the pursuit of their own interests that they were unbecomingly cold in the work of the Lord. It just puts it really vividly. See, we're, we're going to pursue our interests or we're going to pursue the Lord's. There's really not much of an in-between. And so what Paul is saying about Timothy here is that he is devoted to the things of Christ. He's telling us that Timothy is displaying, actually, and this is where we start to see some of that connection a little bit more, what he called for in, earlier in chapter 2 in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's a real-life example for the believers that's not Jesus, <laughs> that's another believer who's not looking primarily to his own interests, but he's looking to the interests of others. Here's a disciple, a servant of Christ, reflecting the image of Christ. This is what we are called to, and it's shown here practically in the life of Timothy. Timothy is displaying selflessness especially when you consider that doing all that he… Um, when, when you consider everything that he's about to do, that Paul is going to call him to do, it's pretty impressive, okay? He's going to go from Rome to Philippi. Actually, Rome to Philippi, if I go out for the way you guys are looking at it. That's a 22-hour drive. Drive, okay? He didn't have a car, just in case you were wondering. That's a multiple-week trip, if not longer. It's walking down through, through Italy, catching a boat, going across, then walking across, and all this kind of other stuff. And then he's going back just to bring news to Paul of what's going on. That's selflessness for the gospel. And so when I hear something like that in regard to Timothy makes me ask, where's my commitment to the Lord? Am I so warm in the pursuits of my own interests that too often I'm unbecomingly cold to those things of Christ? Are you too warm in the pursuit of your own interests that too often you're unbecomingly cold in the pursuit of Christ? Do you strive to exemplify chapter 2, verse 4? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul had confidence that Timothy would do what he called him to. He's going to send him as soon as, as soon as Paul knows what's going on with him, probably the outcome of his trial. And Paul has this confidence because he's seen Timothy as a man of proven worth. He's a man of character. He'd served with Paul as a son with a father. And look at verse 22. It doesn't say that Timothy served Paul. It didn't serve him as a son to a father, 
but as a son with a father, as an apprentice, served with Paul in the gospel. He didn't serve Paul in the gospel. He served with Paul in the gospel. And I think this actually further illustrates just kind of a a 2B sort of thing here, uh, another characteristic that we've seen come out already, and that's humility. Both of their parts. Paul was humble enough to serve alongside this young man and to mentor him and to care for him. And this young man, who had many gifts, we know that, was humble enough to learn from Paul. And over time of serving together, Timothy showed maturity. He was tested and shown to be genuine. And that testing certainly involved just task over task, but it probably also involved difficulty. Paul knew that trials served to prove our character. Romans 5, starting in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And when I think about that idea of suffering, that leads us perfectly into Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You see, Timothy's not going to leave right away. Timothy's going to wait until things shake out with Paul, but Epaphroditus will leave right away. Paul believed it was necessary for that to happen, and even before giving reasons for why he believed that was necessary, he uses some really beautiful language in describing Epaphroditus. We don't know much about this guy. We don't know as much as we do about Timothy, but we see this. At first, he calls him my brother. Now, he's not a biologically related person to Paul. In fact, he's likely Greek. The name Epaphroditus comes from the Greek goddess Aphrodite. So he's probably of Greek origin. He he came to know Christ later in life, most likely. But he is a brother in Christ. He, along with Paul and every other believer, has been adopted into the family of God. So he's a fellow brother. He's my brother. And then he's a fellow worker. He's not united by faith only, but he's united through labor, in the work of the gospel. You know, we know, Christians, if if you've ever gone and served in some way with another, there's there's a greater sense of unity from that. Doing a service project together, serving in some kind of missions, just any kind of service, helping out, uh, helping the deacons do something uh, with, with somebody in need in the church, as you serve and you serve with somebody, that grows your relationship with another person. So he says he's a fellow worker. The third, he's a fellow soldier. In the labor of the gospel, there is war. There's spiritual battle. That's a, that's a given. But there can also be very real physical danger and hardship. And Epaphroditus endured that. He fought side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that really even goes back and connects back to 127 and 28, 
when that living in a manner worthy of the gospel is striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, those first three speak of Epaphroditus' relationship with Paul. Then he addresses how Epaphroditus relates to the church because he, he says he's your messenger and minister to my need. He was the mouthpiece for the church of Philippi to Paul, but also the one who delivered to Paul supplies that the church had sent. If we'd flip to 418, it says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So as Epaphroditus is the messenger for the people of the church of Philippi, he's able to minister to and serve Paul's needs. He was helpful to Paul, but yet Paul believed at this point it was necessary to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And the reason is that Epaphroditus had been longing for them and he'd been distressed because he'd heard that they heard he was ill. Okay, try and follow along that. He, so he was concerned about their concern for him. He's concerned about their concern for him, and that's distressing to him. Now, that word distressed is the same word that's translated as troubled in relation to Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, where our Lord sweat blood. He is, he is worked up in many ways over this, over what they… that he's afraid that his life is causing them concern and stress. There's anguish. So Paul longs to send him in order to relieve both of their troubles. And Epaphroditus was not merely just sick. He didn't have a cold. He didn't have the sniffles. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. To say he was sick is a drastic understatement at this point. He nearly died in this work, in, in being this messenger and minister to Paul. And Paul wanted to make that clear. And I think there's a hint here in Paul's language of the sacrifice and willingness to suffer by Epaphroditus, how that reflects back to Christ that we read in chapter 2, verse 8, where Jesus was obedient, becoming uh, obedient to the point of death. Epaphroditus was willing to do the same, not on the same scale, obviously, but reflecting the image of his Savior. The language is that Epaphroditus was on death's door. He was literally a neighbor to death. Yet, God had mercy on him. Now, I think it's great how Paul put this. Paul didn't say, you know, he, indeed he was very ill, but he's all better now. I mean, communicates much the same thing, doesn't it? Epaphroditus was sick, now he's not. Rather, Paul focused on the work of God, on God's mercy it, for everyone. And it was mercy because had he not recovered, Paul actually stated that Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow or grief upon grief. But the Lord's steadfast love, His mercy, His, His pity towards His people is so amazing. Reminds me of Isaiah 42, the image of the, the servant of the Lord, that a bruised reed He will not break, 
and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He cares for his people so deeply and with great tenderness and compassion. So Epaphroditus getting well wasn't just, he's better, but it was a mercy from God for Paul and for the Philippians, certainly for Epaphroditus. And then Paul wrote in verse 28, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul is very eager to send him back, and for a few reasons. One, that the church would be able to rejoice at seeing him again. He wants the, the, the church to, to lose that concern, that anxiety over it all. And he also wants Epaphroditus to have that distress lessened. But he also states, and that I, so Paul, that I may be less anxious. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would Paul sending Epaphroditus, who's actually been really beneficial to him, why would sending him back make Paul less anxious? Remember, Paul has this overwhelming concern for the churches and for their well-being. How would Epaphroditus going back help in that concern? Paul knew the type of man that Epaphroditus was. Epaphroditus had proven himself as well. And he knew some of the trouble that the church was going through. We can see that in this letter as we continue. Epaphroditus himself going now would be of great help in helping them through the issues that they have. He would be a minister in, in, a, in the vein of Paul back to the people. His presence and example of, of these things that Paul has commanded are things that would affect the life of the church for the better. You know, when you have someone in the church who is just they are submissive and selfless and willing to suffer on behalf of Christ. That affects everyone. It's just like the, it's the opposite of one bad apple will spoil the whole bunch. One good apple will make a significant impact in the life of the church. His influence would be beneficial so Paul held him up in this letter, told them to receive him, to, to welcome him with joy and to honor him. They should highly regard men like Epaphroditus, <clears throat> really any who live this life, those who are willing to risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. You say, I count my life as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, which we're going to get to in a few messages. Epaphroditus was one who did not consider his own safety and security his top priority. His priority was the gospel. His life was oriented around the gospel, not the gospel around his life and whatever was convenient for him. He put himself in harm's way for the sake of the gospel and therefore also for the sake of others. 
And it reminds me of an interaction Jesus had with Peter and the disciples in Mark 8. Mark 8, starting in verse 31, says this, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So he's making it clear what what is going to happen. And then the text says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Where's Peter's mindset? It's on his own things. It's on his own perception of what's right and good. And, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give up in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Folks, do we take those words of Jesus seriously? Whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Are we willing to be submissive and selfless and suffer? Are we willing to do that in humility for the sake of the gospel? Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they were not men ashamed of the gospel. They gave their lives for it. And so what we see in this text is Paul is sending these two men, Epaphroditus first and then Timothy later, to Philippi to bring news of everything that's going on with him, but also to show them what it's like to be servants of Christ, to be an influence, to have an effect on them as a church, so that Paul could be less anxious for the church because he knows there is someone who is giving his life for the sake of the gospel. And he knows the heart of this church. I mean, this this church has a wonderful heart, but even churches with wonderful hearts still have to grow. We're all growing up to maturity. That's Paul's grand motive. Yes, he wanted them to know Epaphroditus was well, that he was able to minister to him, that uh, when, when they didn't have that ability, you know, when he talks about that it was lack, that what was lacking for them, it's, they were in Philippi, he was in Rome, so Epaphroditus was doing what they couldn't. But the main motive was to show them what it meant to follow Christ, to encourage the church, to minister to them. Folks, we serve the church most when we seek to be servants of Christ. Not when we seek our own glory or whatever the things of our life, but when we seek Christ and His glory. And we see the stuff that Paul has called us to, and yeah, it's pretty intense. (laughs) 
But be encouraged because the text also says in chapter 2, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As believers, we are in Christ. Christ is in us. He is working in us by His Spirit. Let that be an encouragement as He calls us to this, and let us, let us strive to not only look for those examples of men and women who follow Christ in this way, but to be those examples for others around us, for the glory of God and for the good of His church. Let's pray in Christ's name. Father, we thank You for just the ability to come together. Thank You for Your love and Your grace. Help us as we consider and ponder the words we've just heard. May we know you. May we long to glorify you, to follow you. May your spirit be at work in each of us for your glory and for our good. Amen.